in Parshas Dvarim, Moshe recapitulates the story of Yisro's suggestion that he appoint judges under him. He was handling all the jurisprudence himself. Yisro said, Novel Tibol, so Moshe appointed people who would hear cases lower courts. And then Moshe discusses the charge, the instructions he gave the judges. <coughs> so he relates to the Jews, I commanded the judges back then as follows. I told them, Here are cases between your brethren, between Jewish litigants. You shall administer just, justice justly, fairly. You shall not choose favorites. The great people, the small, treat everyone equally. Different interpretations of Chazal. Then Moshe tells them, Losaguru is a hard word to translate. It is not a very common word. Rabbi Kaplan, in his Living Torah, the translation I used in the handout, says, Do not be impressed by any man. Do not be impressed. Don't let anybody impress you. That comes from the Targum Shivim, the Septuagint. Other interpretations, he says, include fear. Rashi, Targum, Ibn Ezra say, don't fear anybody, be concerned. Rav Sadiagon says, be concerned. This is actually a mitzvah, though. This is a mitzvah, one of the Targum mitzvahs, that you shouldn't be impressed by the litigants. Chazal, the, the, the standard shot of Chazal, in, in Midrash Sefri, in the Gemara, accepted by the Rishonim, is Losaguru means fear. As it says, by Yagar Moav, Back a few parashiyas ago, it says that the, that the Moab was afraid of the Jewish people. By Yagar Moab, they, they were scared of what the Jews might do to them, and so they hired Bilam, and so on. So, by Yagar means fear. Uh, Losaguru means do not be afraid. The Gemara in Sanhedrin actually brings two interpretations. The first shot is, Losaguru Mpneish, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of what the litigant might do to you. Second shot the Gemara brings is that is that if a person, if, if there is a Talmud, not even a judge, he's a Talmud, he's, he's sitting in the presence of his teacher, and he sees an argument that his Rebbe seems to have missed, he sees an argument that would, not only, not only does Rebbe miss it, it seems to be an argument that would benefit, inconveniently benefit a poor person at the expense of the rich person. Maybe, maybe he doesn't want to antagonize the rich person, but nevertheless, despite the fact that he's only a Talmud, Talmud, despite the fact that it's inconvenient maybe for him to side with the poor person, it says, Lo Saguru. What does that mean? Lo Sachnistivarecha. Ugur, the root Ugur, can also mean don't suppress, don't retain within yourself. Don't, if, if you have something material, a material point relevant to the case, Lo Saguru. Don't withhold it, uh, emit it, express what you need to express, even if you have personal considerations for why you might not want. So these are the two Pshatim of Chazal. Either Lo Saguru means do not be afraid, or Lo Saguru means do not suppress ideas that are relevant to the case. The dominant shot in the postgame is, as I said, the first one, means do not be afraid of the litigants. Even if the litigants are threatening, are, are, are scary people, nevertheless, you should not be afraid of them. The language of the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Rish Lakish, the Gemara makes a distinction. It says that if two people are appearing before you, want to come to you for a dintara, one is Rach and one is Kasha. One is someone who is easier to deal with Gentler, one is kasha, harder, more difficult. So before you've heard the case, even after you've heard the case, if you don't yet know what the answer is, it can go either way, then you can say, 
never mind, I don't want to deal with this. You can say, I don't want to get involved in this case. I don't want to deal with a kasha. I don't want to deal with somebody who's a difficult person. And therefore, you can leave. But once you've heard the case, and you know, or you know where the, where the answer seems to be going, at that point, you cannot say any nitzkak lahem. You cannot say, I don't want to get involved. The Dayan has a duty to dispense justice at that point. This is the shot we mentioned earlier. Losaguru means do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of a kasha. The, according to the Gemara, according to this Gemara, the prohibition only kicks in once you've heard the case and you see the answer already. But at least at that point, you should not be afraid, even if one person is kasha, you should not be afraid, you should dispense justice without fear or favor. What does it mean, kasha? What does kasha mean? So Rashi says, Rashi seems to learn we're talking about someone who is annoying, someone who doesn't give up, someone who's going to keep making more arguments and say, but wait, but this, but that. Some people are just difficult to deal with. So don't say, I don't have time for the headache, I'm not interested in the aggravation. Losaguru, don't be afraid. Tosa seems to understand that losaguru, don't be afraid, means that afraid of actual, of, of something actually, uh, actually harming you. Tosa says that, that, that Tosa says that the, that we're talking about Yero, we're talking about being actually afraid, being actually scared of something bad happening to you. And this point is made explicitly by the Sifri. The Sifri, the Midrash Halacha on Arnar Parsha on Dvarim, the Sifri starts the same way as the Gemara does, that if two people are coming before you, one is Rach and one is Kasha, that once you know where the case is heading, you're not allowed to say, I don't want to get involved. Then the Sifri adds that, then the Sifri adds, Shema Tomar, lest you say, Misyariani, I'm afraid. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid of so-and-so, Ish Ploni, Shema Yara maybe he'll kill my child. Shema Yadlik Eskadishi. He'll burn my, uh, my, my heap of wheat. He'll, he'll cut down my trees. We seem to be going in reverse order here. The first one is the most uh, horrific thing you can think of, that he'll kill your child. The second two are he'll cause you property damage. That's what the Dayan's worried about. Lest you think the Dayan has the right to say, I'm worried about these things happening. Do not be afraid. It's a commandment. It's a mitzvah's loza say. Listed in the, listed in the Tariq mitzvahs. Do not be afraid. You are obligated as a judge to dispense justice, even if you're worried about harm to your property, and even if you're worried about actual harm, about your, actually your child being killed. We just had a case. My, my wife showed me. We, we just had a case. It's a terrible thing. A U.S. Uh, district judge, a uh, disgruntled, uh, deranged, probably, uh, fellow knocked on her door, when the door was open, the, the guy started shooting, killed her son, injured her husband. She wasn't hurt, but uh, this is a real thing. It's very rare that judges actually get killed in the U.S. It's uh, the stuff of fiction, of, uh, of thrillers, but it's very, it doesn't happen that often in, in real life, thank God. In some other countries, in Mexico, other countries, maybe it's more of a problem. But uh, in civilized countries, it doesn't happen very often. But according to the Sifri, this is what the Torah is telling you. The judge might say... I can't deal with this, I'm too scared. The Torah says, no, again, before you hear the case, you're allowed to recuse yourself, but once you've heard the case, and once you see where the case is going, you have a duty to follow it through to the end. You can't say, I'm worried about what will happen to my child, what will happen to my, my property. Losa Guru and Pnayesh, you're commanded to be fearless, to be dauntless, and dispense justice anyway. There is a pair of stories I heard about Rabbi Rafael HaKohen Katz, or Rafael Hamburger. He was a noted uh, Talmud Chacham, author of various farm. 
about two, 200 years ago. They tell a pair of stories about him that illustrate this character trait of the Dayan. The first story is that when he was in consideration for the Rabbanus of Hamburg, a major city in Europe, a very prestigious position, so the city, leadership of the city, was in the hands of the Maskilim. To some extent, the Maskilim were in charge of the communal life, and they wanted to see if he was an appropriate person for the job. They told him, there's a fellow, Moses Mendelssohn, he's in Berlin, go see Mendelssohn, and he'll check you out, and he'll, uh, he'll give us a recommendation on whether we should hire you. Rabbi Hamburger was actually uh, not a maskil, he was a vehement opponent of reform, either now or later in his career, but he didn't know who Mendelssohn was. He said, all right, they want me to travel to somebody named Mendelssohn, I'll travel, I'll, I'll meet him. He travels to Berlin, he uh, gets to Mendelssohn's house, he sees Mendelssohn there learning, learning Chumash, learning Tanakh, without a yarmulke. So Rabbi Hamburger was outraged, studying Torah without, uh, without a yarmulke, he just couldn't believe this. Mendelssohn wished him shalom, so he said, Ein shalom amar Hashem, a reference to the Pasuk, there is no peace to the wicked, Ein shalom l'rishayim amar Hashem, and then he began to uh, vituperate against Mendelssohn, he called him an apikaris, and said that uh, I'm supposed to come to you to get to be tested out, someone who doesn't wear a yarmulke when he learns Taras Hashem, that you expect me to uh, a parik all, someone who throws off the yoke of heaven, an apikaris, he stalked out in, uh, in, a, in a fury, and without, obviously this you know, he realized this was possibly throwing away his career, but he said, absolutely not, I will not tolerate this, and he stormed out. When he returned to Hamburg, a telegram from Mendelssohn had preceded him. Mendelssohn warmly recommended him for the job, and he said, this is the man you want for your of, someone who is not scared of uh, influential people, someone whose career means nothing to him, if doing the right thing is right, that's what he'll do. So again, I, when I read the story, my first reaction, my ongoing reaction is, I'm not sure if this tells us more about the integrity of Rabbi Rafael Hamburger or the integrity of Moses Mendelssohn, but either way, it tells you about both of them, I suppose. I have no idea if this is a true story. It floats around the internet. I have no idea where this comes from. But this is the first illustration of Rabbi Hamburger's fearlessness. The second illustration, this is a story I heard many years ago, decades ago in my youth. I also don't know where this one comes from either. It's a lovely story. It would be nice if it were true. I don't know if it is true. But it is a, a very charming story. So Rabbi Rafael Hamburger settles into his new position in Hamburg. They have a grand, uh, a grand celebration to welcome him. The installation, the Hachtara. Fine. Everything is settling down to business. They give him his office. He goes into his office. A woman comes. A woman who doesn't seem like a very, quote-unquote, important or a significant woman, a poor person, a woman of no account. She says, Rabbi, I have a claim against so-and-so. So-and-so is the Rosh HaKahal, the leader of the community, a rich and powerful individual. I've been after him for some claim for a while. I'm getting no satisfaction. Rabbi, I want justice. So the rabbi tells his aide, his shamash, okay, go out and summon so-and-so to a Torah. The shamash says, maybe you don't understand this fellow is the Rosh HaKahal. He's the one who got you your job. He's, his word is law around here. You really don't want to start up with him, certainly not on your first day in office. So the rabbi tells him, if you aren't prepared to do your job, I'm after to replace you with somebody who is. Now go summon him to a Dintara. Fine. So the Shamash walks out, returns eventually with predictably the, the rich man's response. He says, the rich man was most displeased. He says, absolutely not. Who do you think you are? Tell me what to do. I will not. If you know what's good for you, you'll, you'll leave me alone. Rav Rafal Hamburger turns to Shamash and says, all right, 
that, that's how he wants to play it. Go back to the rich men. Go back to the Rosh HaKahal. Tell him, I demand that he appear, I demand that he appear immediately for this Dintara. If he doesn't, I will excommunicate him. I will place him under the ban. The Shamash looks at him like, you're not, you're not serious, are you? That's what you want to do? This is, this is your career. He made you and uh, he can break you, basically. Is this really uh, prudent? He says, go, go do it. So the Shamash, uh, the Shamash walks out. Everyone is holding their breaths, waiting for the explosion. Soon the Shamash comes back in with the rich man. The rich man is beaming with a smile. He says, welcome, Rabbi. You, uh, you passed our test. We, we, we're, we're glad to have you here. This, the, the whole thing was staged. The whole thing was a setup. We needed to make sure that you are indeed a person. We have you know, rich and tough people here. We needed to make sure that you're a person who is uh, undaunted, who's not scared, of, uh, not scared of pressure, and you just passed with flying colors. We're glad to have you here. These are certainly the, the characteristics of a Dayan. Has to be able to be fearless, and uh, and it's certainly certainly a uh, certainly aspirational that Dayanim should have these character traits. But again, returning to the halachic perspective, this is what the Torah commands when it says Lo Saguru, and according to the Sifri, Lo Saguru means even if you're worried about death, even if you're worried about in, about damage to your property, and even if you're worried about death, the Torah says Lo Saguru that you're not allowed to be afraid, and the and that's, that's what the Torah commands you to do. Now, a number of Akronim ask, really? That you're, not, that, that, you're not, that you're not supposed to take into account a threat to your child, a concern for the life of your child? We know that the general rule in, throughout the Torah is that if a person is in a dangerous situation, his life is in danger, someone else's life is in danger, we say for almost every mitzvah in the Torah, the halacha is, is yavar val yaharik. If a person has to machal Shabbos to save his life, he's machal Shabbos. A person has to eat non-kosher food, he eats non-kosher food. A person has to neglect the performance of any positive mitzvah, he neglects the performance of any positive mitzvah. Everything except for a very short list of exceptions. Avodazara, idol worship, giliarayos, certain types of sexual immorality, shvichas damim, murder, maybe a couple of other cases, but a very short list of exceptions for which a person is expected to give up his life. But every other mitzvah in the Torah, the halacha is... Is that the Torah says that you should preserving life is paramount, and every other mitzvah, every other avera is subordinated. The fulfillment of every other mitzvah and avera is subordinated to the paramount goal of preserving life. So why on earth is a dying really expected to stand by and allow his child to die just to make sure that he dispenses justice? Is that really what the Torah wants? So we'll discuss soon. There are many poskim who 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 understand this. The free is not talking about whether is a really clear and credible threat to anybody's life. Judges get threats all the time. The, it's the job of law enforcement to sift through them, decide which are credible. We're going to see soon. Some understand the Safri is not talking about a credible threat. It's talking about just, uh, just excessive nervousness by the diet. But there are some who learn, apparently. The Safri is talking about a credible threat. And they actually ask. They actually ask, how can it be? As a person, is a Dayan really expected to just stand by and risk the life of his child? First of all, a halacha that doesn't seem to be correct. And anyway, it just seems like, a, uh, it seems like an incredibly high bar for a Dayan. A Dayan really has to just do nothing while, his, while, he, while some organized crime figure is threatening to harm his children. So this question is asked by a number of achronim of the last couple of centuries. One very interesting approach is taken by Ratzvi Hirsch Kalisher. Ratzvi Hirsch Kalisher was a distinguished Talmud Chacham of the 19th century. He's most famous 
<coughs> for being the architect of the, one of the earliest architects of modern religious Zionism. He was the founder of the of the Chovet Zion movement. He was the intellectual founder. He, he he was very active in in the movement uh, on the part of the religious, the devoutly religious, to move to Eretz Israel. He believed uh, he he famously believed that it was possible to actually offer karbanos to to reinstate the sacrificial order in in Eretz Israel. And he, uh, he started a tremendous debate among the Gedolim of Europe, whether it was possible or it wasn't possible. But this is what he's most famous for. But he, but he was, in general, a distinguished Talmud Chacham, a student of Rebbe Kiveger. And he wrote a sefer on Choshen Mishpat called Moznaim Mishpat, a commentary on the first section of Shulchan Aruch Choshen Mishpat. And there he asked this question. He says, how can the Sifri say this? Sifri really expect a person to give up his life rather than give up his child's life rather than... Uh, Rather than, uh, in, in order to avoid dereliction of duty, he, he has to risk, risk lives. Since when? The Torah says, V'chai v'hem. Every mitzvah in the Torah we set aside for, in order, to, in order to, ask, to assure the preservation of life. Even when it comes to corrupting a judicial procedure. There's a Gemara in Ksuvus. The Gemara talks about witnesses who are threatened, threatened with their lives, that their lives are threatened. Unless they sign false documents, people threaten to kill them. The Gemara makes it clear that they're supposed to do that. They're, 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 they're entitled to do that. They're allowed to sign false documents. They're not, they're not Rashaim for doing that because life comes first. There is an opinion of Rabbi Meir who seems to say not like that, but the halacha certainly follows the view that witnesses whose lives are threatened are allowed to perjure themselves. So the question is, so what is this free expecting? Why does this free really expect a Dayan to go about doing his duty even if lives are at stake? So first he proposes, we mentioned earlier, he proposes free is not talking about where the danger is so pronounced. But then he says a very interesting approach. He says, we can say that the free is not talking about simply abandoning the case and saying, I don't want to deal with this. That, if you want to do that, that's fine. If, you're, if your life is threatened, your child's life is threatened, and you say, okay, I'm simply giving this case up because I can't risk my life or my child's life, that would indeed be fine. That's not, that's not what the free is talking about. Even though in general, as a guru says, you shouldn't do that, but if a life is at stake, then the Sifri would not expect you to, to uh, risk a life in order to persist in doing your duty. What the Sifri is talking about is actually issuing a corrupt ruling. If the person threatening you doesn't just want you to leave the case, he actually wants you to issue <coughs> a corrupt ruling in his favor, that you're not allowed to do, even if lives are at stake. Even if there is a serious and credible threat to life, you're not allowed to issue a false ruling. Why not? How is that different from the case of witnesses who are perjuring themselves and delivering false testimony? So he says the difference is that witnesses are not distorting the Torah. Witnesses are making a factual statement about the case. It has no long-term precedential significance. It may cause a miscarriage of justice in this case, but they aren't distorting the truth of the Torah. A Dayan who issues a ruling, and the ruling has precedential value, the halacha may become established in, in, in accordance with his ruling, the Dayan is causing a permanent and ongoing distortion of the Torah. That, Rav Kalisher says, is indeed an exception to the rule of Yavar Val Yehareg. That is something that is intolerable. It's Akira Sadas. It's uprooting the law of the Torah. Such a thing is so completely intolerable, even if lives are at stake, you're not allowed to falsify the Torah. Again, not every judicial ruling has precedential value. Some are contingent on the facts of the case. Some are issued without explanations. Rav Kalisher is assuming the Safri is talking about a case where the ruling will, may or will, have a, have a have precedential value for the future, and it will cause a distortion of the Torah. In such a case, the halacha is Yeharig, Yeharig, actually Yeharig Val Yavar. 
He brings other examples of this, where the Chachamim of the time of the Temple were faulted for flattering kings, for flattering them about their eligibility for the monarchy, even if they weren't, even though their lives might have been at stake. The halacha is to distort the Torah, to issue a public official ruling in, in conflict with the, what the Torah actually says, even if lives are at stake, unacceptable, that is Yaharig Valyava. The basic idea of Rav Kalisher, that the that preserving the truth of the Torah is of such utterly paramount importance that it even overrides Bikok Nefesh, life and death, is most famously associated, he doesn't bring it, but is most famously associated with a position of the Marshal, or Shlomo Luria. The Marshal is commenting on a Gemara in Babakama. The Gemara in Babakama is discussing the classic cases of oxen, my ox, and your ox, oxes that gore each other. The Talmud is discussing specifically the case of the ox of a Jew that gores the ox of a non-Jew, the ox of a non-Jew that gores the ox of a Jew. So the halachas throughout Babakama are well established for oxen of Jews that gore each other, that the ox of one Jew gores the ox of another Jew. How do these halachas change? How, how are they... How are they how are they applied when one of, the, one of the two litigants, one of the two disputants is a non-Jew and one is a Jew? So the Talmud brings an opinion that if, a Jew, if the ox of a Jew gores the ox of a non-Jew, then, then the Jew is actually exempt from liability. He's putter. And on, on, the, on the other hand, if the ox of the non-Jew gores the ox of a Jew, he, pay, he has to pay for the damage. And not just chachinezek, not just the 50% assessment of damages, which often apply in such cases, Nezek Shalom, full Nezek. So we, we go to the two extremes. When, a Jew, when, when a, the ox of a Jew gores the ox of a non-Jew, they are exempt from liability according to Torah law. When the ox of a non-Jew gores the ox of a Jew, he has full liability even more than he does in an ordinary case of two Jews. This is a halacha that obviously draws a very invidious and very provocative distinction between Jews and non-Jews. The Talmud relates, relates an anecdote where two officials of the Romans, two Roman officials, once came to the Jews and said, teach us your Torah, we want to learn about your Torah. So they taught them all about Torah, including this halacha. And the Romans said, we're, uh, we're very impressed with Torah in general. Everything you said in the Torah is true and fair and logical, defensible, except for this. How can it be that you, you have a different standard for Jews and non-Jews? What, how is that fair? What happened to uh, all men are created equal, the brotherhood of man? Whatever it is, that's not fair, that doesn't make sense. However, because you were straight with us, because you were honest with us, we, we respect that, and we will not inform our superiors about this halacha. Obviously, had they informed their superiors, things might not have turned out well for the Jews, but they, 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 were, uh, they, they did us this, this grace, this favor. They told us they would not report this to the higher-ups. Says the marshal, what were the Jewish people thinking? They knew the Romans. They, they knew what the Romans could do to them if the Romans would find out about this. Surely they weren't banking on the kindness and grace of these two officials to not report this. So what were they thinking when they taught them this halacha? Shouldn't they have... Sfarim are always full of things where they change, the, they change text for the benefit of the censors. Why were they... Why didn't they uh, simply lie and simply you know, omit this halacha or distort this halacha? Why would they have, to, why would they have told these Roman officials this, uh, this incredibly provocative halacha? Says the marshal... You see from here that distorting the Torah is Yaharig Val Yavr. Even if lives are at stake, you cannot falsify the Torah. I guess if they could have gotten away with skipping this whole din without discussing it, that might have been okay. Maybe they had no choice. Maybe the Romans asked them what the halacha would be in such a case. But whatever it is, the Marshal says the same idea as Rav Kalisher several hundred years earlier, that you cannot falsify the Torah, even if it's literally a question of life and death, you, have, you cannot distort the Torah.
There is some question about whether this marshal is normative or not. The Ramosha Feinstein quotes it in various chuvas and in, in different contexts about how important it is not to do things that can cause falsification of the Torah. One of the places, I believe, is a discussion of uh, double ring ceremonies, exchanging the rings. So one objection, Ramosha was, was, as is well known, Ramosha was opposed to double ring ceremonies. One of his arguments is it can cause a distortion of the Torah. People will misunderstand what Kedushin is. They'll think, I believe he makes this argument, people will think that the Kedushin is something else. That's causing a distortion of the Torah, and that's a terrible thing. But do we actually paskin like the Marshal? So my father always tells me that the... Rabbi David Cohen relates in one of his farm, Rabbi David Cohen of New York relates in one of his farm that somebody once came to Ramosha for a haskama, I believe it was, on one of his farm, and the Sefer contained these changes, these uh, battlerizations for the, for the censor. They, they, they softened some of the halachas that might, that might offend, aggravate non-Jews. So they asked Ramosha, are you allowed to, uh, Ramosha was willing to endorse this, they asked him, but are you allowed to falsify the Torah, the Marshal says, Yaharik Bal Yavar, no matter how, no matter how great the value of doing this is, Marshal says that falsifying Torah is Yaharik Bal Yavar. Ramosha said, we don't pass him like the Marshal, the Marshal is not Lahalacha, and as proof, Ramosha argued that many Sfarim, as I noted earlier, many Sfarim, for hundreds of years, changed the, the text of various provocative Halachas to avoid offending non-Jews. For example, many, various Halachas that treat Jews differently from non-Jews, You'll find they wrote into the Sefer, they wrote, instead of, instead of a word like Nachri or Gai, they wrote Amaleki, Mitri, barbarians from the, from the darkest Amazon or something. They, they, they often tried to, to argue they weren't talking about uh, ordinary non-Jews, while we usually assume they were. But they wrote this to uh, get the censors off their back. Ramosha said, you see that we don't pass like this, Marshal. On the other hand, Rabbi David Cohen, I believe, argues that, the, my father said, that the... It's not a riot, because all those cases were transparent. Everyone who read the Sefer knew that they were, that those were just for the benefit of the censor. They were written in a different font on the side of the page. They were, they were, every, everyone who, who knew how to learn the Sefer understood that those things were not serious. But if you actually falsify the halacha in a way that makes it difficult to tell what the true halacha is, that could be a real problem. Marshall holds that's a problem. In any event, the, this is the position of Rav Kalisher, that, the, that what the Sefer is concerned about here is Ziyof HaTorah, is Akira's Hadas, uprooting the Torah, that is absolutely unacceptable, even if lives are at stake. Another approach to this, to this question of why the Safri, how the Safri could possibly expect us to, why would it expect us to give up a life, to risk a life in order to dispense justice, is proposed by Rav Aaron Walken. Rav Aaron Walken was a great Polish Rav from the first part of the 20th century back in, back in Poland, Pinsk. So he raises this question in a couple of his farm that the rule always is, that a person is not supposed to, not required to fulfill a mitzvah if the price is human life. So why is this different? So Rav Walken has a very interesting, a very ingenious approach. He says, the Torah tells you, don't eat non-kosher food, keep Shabbos. Normally, that's not a question of life and death. There happens to be a question of life and death. Then the mitzvah gives way in, uh, the mitzvah gives way in order to preserve life. However, the Torah explicitly is telling you, don't be afraid. The Torah is explicitly dealing with fear. The Torah is telling you, don't be afraid. So obviously the Torah is telling you that, set aside your fear. Once the Torah tells you explicitly, set aside your fear, so the implication is, that means regardless of how much fear there is, any kind of fear, even if it's a question of life and death. So this is, this is yes, this is actually an exception to the regular rule of Yarek Valyavar, because the Torah is explicitly telling you, don't be afraid. 
A similar idea we find in the context of war. The Torah tells you, wage war against the Canaanites, wage, wage war against the Amalekites. What do you mean? War is dangerous. Yahari val Yavar. The Yavar val Yaharig. How can it be a mitzvah to wipe out Amalek? But it's dangerous, so I shouldn't do it. Yeah, but the Torah told you to do it. So the Torah obviously is telling you this is an exception. If the Torah gives you a mitzvah where the mitzvah inherently, intrinsically is wrapped up with danger, the Torah perforce is telling you that in this case the mitzvah is done even though there's danger. Why isn't this listed as one of the exceptions to, uh, to Yahweh Val Yaharag? I'm not sure. But anyway, this is the position of Rav Wolkin. He very much seems to assume that the mitzvah, according to the Sifri, applies, the, the Avera of Losoguru applies even if there is serious risk. He actually brings the Shvos Yaakov, one of the Akronim who says the Sifri is not talking about credible risk, the Shvos Yaakov. He actually says Shvos Yaakov is wrong because of this argument, because here the Torah is explicitly telling you set aside any concern for life. This is an exception to the normal rule of, of Yavar, of, uh, Yavar Valyeharik. The, the basic question, does the Torah really, it, does the Sifri really mean that a person is supposed to go about dispensing justice, doing his duty, even if lives are at stake? As we've been intimating, this actually is a subject of considerable dispute. The Shavos Yaakov we just mentioned is one of the primary Akronim who says no. The Shavos Yaakov says Jews, Jews are decent people, even Jews who are Rishayim, even Jews who have a reputation for villainy, but not murder. The idea that if he loses the case, he'll actually go through with a threat to harm the dying child, that's just unspeakable. A, a, a Jew is not suspected of doing such a thing, even if he's talking, talk is cheap. We don't believe that he's actually going to do that. That's what the Sifri is talking about. The, the idea that uh, the idea that the that, 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 that don't be afraid. We're telling the dying, don't worry. He's just, he's just blowing off steam. He's not really going to do it. And even if, you're, even if he said it and you're worried about it, don't be worried. It's not a realistic consideration. In the Hanami, he says, if there actually is a, a credible threat, like if, if a person is so black-hearted, he actually, we actually know from his uh, reputation, he actually does kill judges, he actually does do that kind of thing, then of course, the Shavis Yaakov says, we're not talking about that. Of course, the... Of course the of course, in such a case, the dying has the right to say, I can't do this, I can't put my child's life at risk. Property damage would not be an excuse, he says. The dying is obligated to do his duty, even if there is a credible and serious threat to property, because that, the Torah, doesn't, doesn't let the dying set aside his duty. But a threat to life, the Yaakov says, the dying could say that, look, I, uh, if the threat is credible, if this guy is an exception to the normal rule that, that Klal Yisrael are... Baishanim, Rachmanim, this guy is not a Rachman, this guy is a ruthless person who would kill the judge or kill the judge's child, then the Shavis Yaakov says certainly the judge would have the right to set aside, to, to, uh, to abandon his duty. But short of that, just because he's worried, if the threat is not credible objectively, then the Dayan is commanded to do his duty. As we noted earlier, if Walken disagrees, or if Walken says even if the threat is credible, the Dayan still has to do his duty because that's what the Torah wants him to do. I don't know if Rav Walton would say it, even if, even if it was a certainty, even if it was more than just a credible threat, it was virtually certain he's going to do it. I don't know how far Rav Walton would go, but he does, he does critique the position of Shavis Yaakov and says, no, the Zavri is talking about even where there is a credible threat, you still have to do your duty. Other Akronim, though, also take positions similar to the Shavis Yaakov and say the Zavri is only talking about cases where the threat is not that likely, not that serious. One of the earliest is the Marashtam, Rav Shmuel di Medina, one of the great Svardik poskim in the 16th century, he says that when the he says that that when the Gemara said that when the when the when the, when the Torah says Lo Saguru, when the Safri says you worried about harm, 
He says it's not talking about Bari Hazeka, it's not talking about where the harm is definite and certain, it's only talking about a case where the harm is indefinite, uncertain, where the harm is certain, he says, then no, then, then a person would, a person would not have to, uh, would not be expected to do his duty. Now, he uses terms Bari Hazeka and low Bari Hazeka, that would seem to imply that even when the threat is credible, if it's not certain, if it's uh, 50-50 maybe, you wouldn't have to, then you would still be expected to risk even a life, to risk the life of your child. However, that may not be what he means. The Marashtam, when he explains this distinction between a, a uh, uncertain threat, a, a not Bari Hazeka threat, and a Bari Hazeka threat, he makes a reference to a famous Gemara. The Gemara says a principle, Shluche mitzvah enam nizokim, those who are involved in the performance of a mitzvah, the Torah tells them they will not be harmed, God will protect them. However, when it's Bari Hazeka, if the harm is more concrete, then they are not award, they're, they're, they cannot be confident of any such protection. He brings the, the classic biblical proof of this is that when Shmuel Hanavi, Shaul had been the king, Shaul had fallen out of favor in God's eyes, Shaul had made errors and God wanted to replace him. So God told Shmuel Hanavi, we, I'm going to appoint a new king, go to Yishai and appoint his son as the king, David HaMelech. He wasn't a Melech yet, but go appoint the one who would become David HaMelech in place of Shaul. What was, what was Shmuel's response to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Shmuel said, Eich elech, How can I go? If Shaul hears what I'm doing, I'm committing treason, I'm appointing his replacement, he'll kill me. So how can, that's not a responsible thing to do, he tells God. So God just told him to do it. It's certainly a mitzvah. Listening to God is a mitzvah. Nevertheless, Shmuel said, I can't do this. How can I do this? It's dangerous. So we see, even though Shluchim mitzvah ain't on Izokim, but if the, if the danger is credible, committing treason in the committing treason against a king who, is, who takes his position seriously is certainly a credible, puts you in credible danger. Hashem said, you're right. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it like that. You should have a subterfuge. You should have, take an animal, Eglat's Bakar, take an animal, say you're going to bring a carbon. You'll have a story. You'll have a cover story, as we would say today. But you're right. I, I don't expect you to do this uh, w- without, a, without some kind of uh, disguise. That would indeed be reckless, and you would not be expected to do that. So the Erech Shai, Shlomo Yehuda Tabak, in the 19th century, follows this Marashtam, and he says, Bari Hezeka, not Bari Hezeka, that's not what we mean. We don't mean that if, it's a ser- that if it's a serious threat, but not certain, you're still Chayev. According to this paradigm, Shluchim Mitzvah, Shluchim Mitzvah ends well before the threat becomes certain. Shluch- the, the Gemara makes it clear, the only time you say Shluchim Mitzvah and Nizokim is when it's not even Shriach Hezeka. It's not even, it's not even a very likely harm. It, it's a remote possibility. If there's a small, remote possibility of harm, then we say, if it's a mitzvah, don't worry about it. But as soon as the, as soon as the, the concern for harm becomes significant, certainly well before Bari, it's not certain, but as soon as the, the chance of harm is significant, then we stop saying, we stop saying Shluchim Etzvah and Nizokim. We no longer say that. It's not responsible anymore to rely on protection from the mitzvah. This is, of course, what we've been hearing in the context of coronavirus. People want to go to shul, they want to go, they want to, go to yeshiva and learn Torah. Coronavirus is not a sure thing. Most people will be fine if they, if they do that. But the, but, but the post can generally have held that the risk is great enough. Even if you're doing a mitzvah, you don't say shluchim mitzvah and nizokin when the threat is serious, even if it's very far from certain. So that's how the Rakshai understands, based on the Marashtam, but he takes it further. He says that, shluchimit, that this whole idea of losaguru don't be afraid of harm to your property, to your child, he says. That's only if the threat, similar to the Shavis Yaakov, is a very remote threat. It's only, uh, you're worried about it, but it's not, a, it's not a serious threat. It's a remote threat, and we have the, the, the promise, the guarantee of Shluchim Mitzvah, and Nizokin. That's what the Torah means, do it anyway. 
However, he says, once the threat goes beyond a mere threat, it becomes a, a, it becomes shriach, it becomes something which is concrete and plausible, even though it's very far from bari hezekiah, it doesn't have to be bari, once the threat is something that's concrete and that's serious already, at that point we no longer say, at that point we no longer say, losaguru, and he argues it doesn't make sense, he says, why would, why would Hashem expect the Dayan to forfeit his property in favor of the litigant's property? My property is important too, my child's life is important too, what sense does it make for the Torah to tell me to give up my property in favor of his property? That's always the rule in Mitzvah Rav Lachavero. The Torah never tells you to give up your property in favor of somebody else. You're returning, you, you find an Aveda, you're returning lost property. If it's going to cost you money, you don't have to do it. Shalchak Kodem. Even if it's not a question of life and death, even if it's just a question of Nezek, he says, the Gaddish, the, the heap of wheat, or the, or the cutting down the trees, once the threat is credible, he says, even if it is even if it is, uh, even if it's certainly not bari, he says, it's not certain, once it becomes shchiach, once it becomes plausible and not just a remote possibility, at that point again, he says, there is, at that point again, he says, it's, uh, even though the Marashdam says bari, he says, you don't really need bari, it's enough that it's shchiach hezeka, and it's enough that it's plausible and uh, a, a realistic possibility, and at that point, at that point, again, you are putter from doing your duty of losaguru, even if it's only financial harm. That's the position of the Arachai, similar to the Shavos Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov Gesundheit, the author of the Teferis Yaakov, also takes the same basic position, that the Sifri is only talking about where the danger is remote, not where the danger is, uh, is, is plausible and realistic. He, come, he arrives at that conclusion from a very different argument. He makes a, a much different argument than everything we've been discussing. It's actually a very logical argument that he himself notes that it's surprising that nobody else makes this point. The halacha is that a dayan is required to act, that a dayan is required to be disinterested. A dayan who has any interest in the case, financial interest, other types of interest, has to recuse himself. He's not allowed to be a dayan in such a case. The Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, have very powerful language, the Dayan has to be very careful and has to think very carefully if he has any interest in the case whatsoever, even a remote interest in some possible angle of interest. He says that the Dayan has to be absolutely impartial. If he has any interest in the outcome of the case, he should not adjudicate the case. So, ask her by Gesundheit, so what on earth are we talking about? The person who just threatened the Dayan's child. He says, if the ruling doesn't come, doesn't come out my way, I will kill your child. How can he possibly be disinterested in this, at this point, he says? His own child, his property is at risk, so how on earth do you expect him to give the case a fair hearing? So, says it to Ferris Yaakov, the answer must be the same answer as we've been saying until now. The Safri is not talking about where there is a substantial and credible risk to the judge. Safri is talking about just threats, where objectively they aren't that significant. That's what the Torah says, Lo Saguru, don't take the threat seriously, it's inherently not a serious threat. Objectively, it's not a serious threat. Don't let it get to you. And remain impartial, because you, because you are impartial. You have no real interest here. He's just talking. That's what the Torah is telling you. But certainly, he says, in Okinami, if the threat is actually credible, if we do have a concrete risk to the Dayan, if, we, if objectively the Dayan's well-being, or the well-being of his family, of his property is at stake, then he's no Gabadaver. Not just is he, not, not only is he not commanded to hear the case, he's commanded not to hear the case, because at this point, he can't possibly be impartial. If the, if the risk to the Dayan is, is credible, then, then of course he can't hear the case. He's not allowed to hear the case. Certainly the Torah can't say, Losa Guru, he's even possible to be a Dayan in such a case. But certainly, again, he, he arrives at the same conclusion as the Shavos Yaakov, as the Marsh Dam, as the Erech Shai, 
that the Sifri is only talking about where there might be threats, there might be remote possibilities, but they're not serious possibilities, and that's what the Torah is telling you, Losaguru. Perhaps the earliest source, the earliest source I've seen who takes this position is, or a similar position, is Rabbeinu Yonah in Shari Tshuva. Shari Tshuva is a Musar work, but it also has a long halachic section, the famous third shar, the, the third section of the work, is a list of mitzvahs, one after another, where Rabbeinu Yonah explains Pesukim, explains the biblical text, and explains some of the basic nature of many, many mitzvahs. So the mitzvah of Losaguru, he explains as follows. He says the mitzvah is, the mitzvah is not just, I know it's dangerous, but be brave and do it anyway. No, the mitzvah is to believe that you'll be okay. He says, Huzharnu, the Torah is commanding us to believe, Lahamin, that no misfortune will befall us, it will befall us for doing justice. By, by doing the right thing, by remaining impartial, with, by judging without fear or favor, we have to believe that God, God runs the world, and the world is designed to run in such a way, God will take care of us, nothing bad will happen to us. He, he also brings the expression, Shluche Mitzvah and Nizokim. And that's, that's the Pasuk, he says, the Pasuk says, Lo and the Pasuk continues, Ki Amishpat Lelokimhu. The Torah is offering a reason. Don't be afraid. Why? Ki Amishpat Lelokimhu. We might have thought that meant... Don't be afraid, because what you're doing is so important, there's no, root, there's no, we, we, there's no time for being afraid. What you're doing is uh, so critical that we can't afford the luxury of being afraid. Rebbein understands it differently. Rebbein says, don't be afraid, there's no need to be afraid. Believe that you're safe. Why? Because doing justice is God's work. As long as you're doing what God wants, he'll take care of you. And therefore, don't worry, you won't be hurt. Not So up till now, we've been assuming that the idea is... There might be some danger, small danger, large danger, remote danger, plausible danger. There might be some danger, but do your duty anyway. Rabbeinu says, no, the Torah is telling you, like, like the Erech Shai, lo seguru don't be afraid, because you don't have to be afraid, because Hashem will take care of you. But that's only, that's only because of shlucha mitzvah and nizokin, so it's, extreme, so it's quite plausible that Rabbeinu the Shari Tshuva, would take the same position as Marashtam and Erech Shai, insofar as we're working within the paradigm of shlucha mitzvah and nizokin, that only holds true if the danger is not shchiach, if the danger is still remote, and therefore it's, it's quite possible he would agree that the Sifri also is only talking about, even though it gives this, this dramatic example of danger to family even, that's only where the danger is very remote, then the Torah expects the judge to do his duty and believe that he'll be safe. I'll just close with one last, one last uh, set, of, uh, set of opinions. The Ramah's position is that even though we noted briefly a couple of times that Losa Guru only applies once the Dayan has heard and, and knows where the case is going, but Losaguru does not prevent him from simply avoiding the case to begin with. There is one exception. The Rambam says that if a Dayan is Mamun al-Arabim, he's not simply a private judge who volunteers to hear cases. If he is Mamun al-Arabim, a publicly appointed judge, then he has to hear the case even, he's not allowed to, he's not allowed to turn away even before the case has begun, then he, he always must hear the case. It's unclear what the Rambam source is. There's no apparent, uh, no apparent statement to this effect in Chazal. In terms of what the Rambam's reason is, though, we find at least two very different reasons in the poskim. The Radvaz explains that the Rambam's reason is that if you're a Mamunal Rabbim, if you're a public official, then the Rabbim will help you out. The Rabbim will take care of you. Rabbim, we say you, v'yatilu. Today we would say we have U.S. Marshals, we have uh, security forces, metal detectors. 
once you have the weight, of the, once you have the, the backing of the public, you can fail much safer. An ordinary judge has the right to say, I can't afford to get involved in this. He, this guy is tough. I can't afford to tangle with him. If you're a public servant, then you have the, the, the resources of the public, so you, so you should feel relatively safe, so you should hear the case. Another explanation, though, was given by the Bach. The Bach says, it's not because the, the public servant is safer than the private judge. The, the deranged gunman can find him in the street or something and can also uh, possibly hurt him. He's not, he's, not, he's not absolutely safe either. The reason for the Ram's distinction between a private dying and a public judge is that society needs public judges. The private dying has the luxury of saying, I won't hear the case. Someone else will do it. It doesn't have to be me. It's not my responsibility. I'm not the official who's in charge of maintaining just, of, of enforcing justice. But if you are Munal Rabim, if you are the public servant, he says, you don't have that luxury because... Otherwise, he says, how can the world survive? If, if, if the rich, the powerful, the ruthless can simply say, we do whatever we want and no one can naysay us because everyone's scared of us, then, then there's no justice. Then, the, then it's the law of the jungle. The rich and the powerful do what they want and nobody says boo to them. Therefore, society needs the fact that somebody's in charge. Somebody has to be the one to lay down the law and say that, no, I, that this person cannot simply absolve himself of responsibility. If you have the position of the Munal Arabim, you are the public official, then you have the responsibility of enforcing justice, even though this fellow is a scary fellow. Similar point is made by the Rashba. The Rashba talked about an actual case of somebody who threatened Bastin and said, don't, don't meddle in my affairs, don't get involved, leave me alone. And he threatened the Dayan, if you do, you'll regret it. The question is, can the Dayan say, I don't want to get involved, I'm too scared of this guy? The Rashba says, no, you can't say that. First he says, it's just talk, just because he threatens you, who knows? Who knows if the threat is really credible? I mean, that depends. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But the Rashba apparently assumed in his case it was reasonable to dismiss the threat as being idle threat. But also the Rashba said, it's untenable. If the, if the Dayan who's in charge is going to say, the Basin's going to say, we can, we're going to fold in the presence of this guy, this, uh, this terrifying fellow, then, then uh, first of all, everyone will do that. Everyone can be, everyone can be ruthless enough and, and, and vicious enough and threaten Dayanim to do that. And anyone with enough power, enough ruthlessness to do that, will be above the law, will be not subject to the law, he says. And that's what the Torah means when it says, Lo seguru upneyesh. Basiyah says, the Rashba was talking about Mamun al-Rabim like the Rambam. The, the, the Rashba agrees that the Gemara says, an ordinary person can say, I don't want to get involved before he hears the case, but the Rashba means, a Mamun al-Rabim, the Torah has a higher standard for him. A Mamun al-Rabim, someone who's, someone who's appointed by the Rabbim, it's his job to maintain order, he has to hear the case, even if he's scared, even before the case begins again. Maybe not if the threat is extremely credible or very shriach, but certainly the basic din of Losa Guru applies in a heightened form to someone who is Mamun al-Rabim, to someone whose job it is to enforce law and order.